Yo, it's the Times Yours Podcast. I'm Spike. Today on the show, Scott Rabb, Esquire writer and author of the new book, Whore of Akron. What's up, man? I like doing this stuff, and, and I, th- I just think we have such a cute little story. I, <laughs> I think we do, too. <laughs> we, we have a cute little story in that, um, as you are a, uh, to put it simply, a LeBron James hater, and I am a LeBron James uh, a lover, that uh, that you were were blasting him on Twitter, and I just incessantly blasted you back until you responded to me. And look at us here; it's like the Hatfields and the McCoys. But and, and that's a good thing. I, I mean, people go, "Oh, it's only sports." Oh, it's only sports. But the truth is, there's not much left in this country that that could ever bring us together. You know, as a city or, or just two guys. And with rare exceptions, it doesn't have to be some kind of pure hatred or anything. You know what I mean? I mean, it sounds cliched, but it's a beautiful thing about sports. It is. The, the passion that sports invokes, there are few things left anymore. I think just because the world has become so segmented and we're so involved in so many different things, that there are a few things as universal as how we feel about sports, you know? I, I've, I've gotten, and I've earned, some stuff you know, uh, with the LeBron, especially the, the Twitter stuff. And, and, you know, that's 140 characters. But I, I, I've gotten stuff lately. That's why I ran the, this excerpt the, from Chapter 9 of a, you know, it's a 300-page book. And, and some guy writes, you know, I hope your child gets cancer of the eyes. <laughs> you know, in that case, there's probably not the opportunity that there was between us to reach, reach back out and go, hey, you know, and have some kind of dialogue start and go somewhere. I mean, once you start with wishing... You know, because I, I understand if I'm right and I wish this athlete would suffer a career-ending injury, I can say, oh, it's contextual, or oh, it's... But you got to own it, too. Once you do that, you're fair game for, for anyone saying anything. But I think for the most part, even when people are, are in severe disagreement, sports at least represents a chance for dialogue. It just ain't going to happen in most places. Now, the book is Whore of Akron, which is available yeah. November 15th, and you can pre-order it on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And I was going to ask you about the excerpt because it's funny. The excerpt is like probably two pages long or three pages long of the actual book, but what everybody decided to run with as an excerpt of your excerpt is the line about you wishing a career-ending injury on James as you watched him. Do you, were you, are you surprised that, that of, of all that you wrote and all that you released, that's what people kind of you know, uh, attached, attached the book to? Is that, that one line? I'm, dis- I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm not surprised. And, and again, it's whiny and hypocritical after come, you know, doing some of the tweeting that I've done for me to play all sensitive and, oh, it's artistic license. I got to call BS on myself if I go in that direction. But at the same time, at that moment, I'm saying even in the excerpt, which is, yeah, 2,500 words, and I think the book's maybe 85 or 90,000 words. So, so at that moment, LeBron is coming out, you know, for the first time on an NBA court in another team's uniform. And God knows, I mean, I lived in Philly, uh, you know, for four, four years and, and was a, was a, I wasn't a 700 level guy, but, I've been at stadiums and arenas all over the world with people screaming, break his legs, you know, that kind of stuff. I can't be the only guy who ever felt this way about a player. And putting it down on the page, I mean, i got to own that. I did. So if people cherry-picked that and beat me over the head with it, there's a limited amount of, of, oh, I'm shocked that they would focus on that line. I guess 
Not many people want to own up to feeling that way, let alone, you know, put it in a book. But that's the truth. I mean, at that moment, and, and there were others, I got to say, uh, my sense of betrayal, or, and by the way, as a guy who does, I love my job, I love my wife, I've got a great kid. Uh, the central question at some point really does become, and it did for me trying to write the book, what's wrong with me? I mean, why am I hating on a fine young athlete to that extent? And, you know, that's a legitimate question. Well, because the, the book is as much about you, is, is about your feelings toward him as much as it's yeah. about him, right? And, 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 what, and it's about what makes a fan. And I know, I know you well enough to know that, you know, you're, you're a media guy, and on one level you're a, a, a professional and you're detached and you, you don't misbehave in the press box, you know, whatever. And at the same time, you're totally devoted to the teams. And for me, I'm not a, a beat reporter. I, I'm not a newspaper employee. For me, it's like weird how, especially if you're a Cleveland fan, why are you so emotionally invested in what is going to bring you such pain over I mean, at some point? You've got to be insane to care that much. And I think in towns like Philly, towns like Cleveland, not every town, but, but in certain towns, you have uh, uh, this line between fan and fanatic, however you want to use the term, the line disappears altogether and people are just, they're nuts. Well, it almost, the, the book, at least what I read, explores, and, and I would guess, just you in general, your online persona at least, explores a part of being a fan that we all know exists and we all know feels, but, but almost you don't even want to talk about. You don't even want to explore the guy who is screaming, <laughs> you know, who is screaming, break his leg. And it's yeah. funny, you know, like I'm in a place where... They, and and Philly fans will say that that's not what they were cheering. But when Michael Irvin was was laid out and on a stretcher, people were cheering Absolutely. at an Eagles game. So it's just something that I guess people don't even want to deal with or talk no. about his feelings no. like that. It, and and it is shameful. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that that those feelings should be celebrated. I, I mean, it is. Uh, uh, it says something about the nature of sports. And and, and of course, anyone aware of the role. Uh, other other cultures that soccer plays are some places a uh, cricket or, or you know that, that there are, there are whole countries that go a whole lot crazier than than fans in America do in terms of violence and you know just over the top behavior. This is something very primal, I think, in in guys. And you know, I'm not enough of a scientist or, or an intellectual to to understand some of the deeper reasons. But no, it's something we really don't want to touch and. Is something that I felt I had to, to some degree in the book, because I'm not going to write a 300-page hate-filled tweet. I wouldn't find it interesting. I wouldn't expect anyone else to. I want to figure out what is it in me, and also what is it about this athlete in particular, because people have said, well, if he wasn't from the area, you know, if he hadn't been a kid from the from Akron, or I mean, LeBron likes to draw that distinction. To me, it's like saying, oh, you know, Ben Salem isn't really Philly, whatever. But, uh, you know, yeah, that made all the difference in the world. So I wanted to examine some of that sense of this man is a traitor to the homeland. You know, it's not just about, oh, get over it. You're like a bitter ex-girlfriend. That kind of love, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the kind of, like, that's my hometown. That, that, that's a sacred place. And when you come up there, you don't just get to walk away. You, you know, intellectually, I might believe in the right of free agency, but emotionally, I feel like, my God, 
you know, that was a traitorous act, and it cut to the heart of, of a certain kind of patriotism. I know it sounds silly, but I think a lot of Cleveland people who've seen the city suffer for 40, 50 years, they really felt this guy was going to lead us all to the promised land. Well, the, the bitter ex-girlfriend thing, although when people say it is insulting, is, is true in the fact that the reason the ex-girlfriend is so bitter is because she loved you. You know, yes. is because yes. the bitter ex-girlfriend is a, is a real feeling, I think, that we've all felt. Now, when you say it out loud, you're just acting like a bitter ex-girlfriend. <laughs> you, 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 no one wants to be called that, but it's, it's a, it's a, I think it's a similar, a similar feeling that you feel. You loved him and you expected so much of him, um, and you felt so betrayed when it wasn't there. I think that's the similarity. Um, and it, and, I, and I, I think you're right, Spike. I think that is part of it, and it really is... You know, it, to some degree, not wanting to see her in the arms of another man. Um, now, the book, um, the book, it, the book itself begins at what point? Because I imagine it ends after you know, in, at least in its timeline, ends as the finals end. But but where do you start people off from? Well, you know, chronologically, I started the, writing the book. I started reporting the book the season before last season, after the Cavs went down to the Orlando Magic. The year before last, I knew that, you know, there, here was a here was a franchise that I'd rooted for since they were born. I was 18 when the Cavs, you know, came into existence, and when LeBron was was in his walk year, the general manager Danny Ferry, the coach Mike Brown, they were all in their last years, and so the pressure on that franchise to at least get to the finals led me to believe that I, I could write a good book, and and so I followed along, and and of course didn't end the way we wanted it to. They won 61 games and all that, but then lost to the Celtics in the second round of the playoffs. And LeBron had had horrible performances uh, in in those playoffs. Performances that that kind of we saw we saw that happen again uh, against the Mavericks in this year's finals. The book itself kind of begins just with with kind of me introducing myself as a fan, but but immediately goes to you know the the last time that I saw LeBron before the playoffs against the Celtics. Uh, we had only exchanged, you know, pleasantries. He's not accessible to anyone in terms of the media. But, you know, I, I went up to him. I was about to head back to New Jersey. Uh, this was at the end of the season before last when he was still a Cavalier. And I just wanted to let him know, you know, that I was a, a guy of a certain age. I had seen Oscar Robertson play and that he was the best basketball player I'd ever seen. So so kind of, that's part of where the book begins is is with me, shaking the guy's hand. I mean, at that point, nobody felt he was going to leave as a free agent, even if you weren't a Cleveland fan or a, a Cleveland sports writer. Nobody nobody could see the future then. I just want to let the guy know one-on-one that he was the best basketball player I'd ever seen. I'm not talking about count the rings. I mean, I get that argument, but just, just in terms of his sheer brilliance on the court, and I know there's no disagreement between us on that point. Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, it's funny, on, on, on my dad's last show here in Philly, Charles Barkley was there, and my dad forced me to argue with Charles Barkley <laughs> about LeBron James. And yeah. w- one of the things that, that Barkley backed off of at, at one point was that he had said that, that James was, was the best basketball player in the world, and then he, he went and he said he's not even close. And I think a lot of times the, um, the emotion, even with a guy like that, the emotion... It mixes with the the critical judgment that you make, and it's it's hard to it's hard to discern what you 
decide is is true about a player and what you decide you feel about a player. Um, and I, I I think the the fact that you acknowledge that he either was or is as good as he is is an important part in in examining how you feel about him. Like the two separate things, I think that you're you're they able are. to that you're able to you know that you're able to discern between. I think they are separate. I, I think. You know the 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 guy. I, I'm not the greatest X's and O's basketball guy. I don't claim to be, but as a fan watching, I thought even this past season, uh, he earned uh, an MVP award in terms of again the the pure versatility, the range of his skills, the number of minutes he plays, uh, all that stuff. So I'm not dumb or dishonest enough to just just because I feel betrayed or outraged and and hope he never wins an NBA title to somehow turn around and say, you know what, he's not the best basketball player. Derrick Rose deserves I don't think, with all due respect to young Derrick Rose, I think LeBron James, again, was clearly the best player in the NBA last season. Do you think LeBron James is a bad guy? Do you think he's a, an, <laughs> a, do you think he's a, a person, a, a good guy that is surrounded by bad people, or is there no difference between those two? That if you're a, you know, if you're just a, if you're a good guy that decides to surround himself with enough bad people, then you're you're a bad guy too. What what do you deep down? Who do you deep think down. LeBron James is? Deep down, I'm not sure. I don't want to. I don't want to get cute or, or evade the question. I think back when LeBron had to decide about high schools, uh, he made a decision that was not unlike this one where there was the Akron Bucktel High School, the public school, traditionally African-American, and he wound up going to St. Vincent, St. Mary. He wound up going to the Catholic school, predominantly white. He and the teammates that, that Buzz Bissinger wrote about, I think Shooting Stars is the title. Uh, you know, LeBron is a guy who I think is very much aware of being the chosen one. I think he came up tough. I, I don't question that, but I think from a very early age, he, his mother, uh, were aware that potentially he would be a basketball god. Certainly he's surrounded by yes men, and certainly no one he's surrounded by, including the Nike people, uh, had sense enough to realize that the way he, he executed the decision on ESPN would create the kind of backlash, and we're not talking about Cleveland fans or, or, or native Clevelanders. I mean, people who had seen a guy who, after all, has never been, uh, there's never been, you know, Allen Iverson, just for example, had a bunch of baggage trailing along with him. LeBron's never had that kind of stuff, ever. And so I think a lot of people around the country, and I think I, I too, uh, saw him in many ways as an exemplary guy, not, 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 to be idealizing or, or starry-eyed about human beings, but he isn't a guy with drugs or guns or children all over. The, none, of, none of that stuff that, that, that sometimes comes out about different athletes and different, different sports. But at the same time, when he wore the Yankees cap to Jacobs Field, when the tribe you know, was playing the Yankees at the beginning of the 07 playoffs, you know, there was something really weird about that, about basically telling your own fans, you know, the hell with you, I'm a Yankees fan. Uh, so I'm mixed, you know. I I don't know about when he moved to Miami, and and I think you know didn't see his his sons for five or six weeks at a time because they were still living in Akron. You know, I mean, it's his personal life, and and I don't know him well enough to judge good guy bad guy. So I really am torn about 
the character of a man that I can't claim to know personally, and it's really difficult. You know, you don't want to turn into one of those lunatics that takes just one thing. You know, I'm outraged by the betrayal, whatever it is, and judge a man entirely on the basis of of what you see as as the worst of his behavior. Some part of me, you know, realizes that he's 26. I think he'll be 27 this winter. When I was his age, uh, I was a lout. I mean, I, I, I was just a ne'er-do-well, not a, not a pleasant human being. And here's a guy who's been famous and who's had all the pressures that come with fame and celebrity since he was in high school. And i got to admit, he's dealt with it better than most guys in his situation. That, that says something for his strength of character. So you start the book, or at least the idea for the book, in the Orlando series, where he played, he played well, and it was kind of like the, the moment where everybody decided for real, okay, he needs, he needs more help. And you have, I guess you have one image of the way the book even though you don't know how the story is going to go, you, you kind of have a uh, a concept of, of what this is going to be about. Then the yeah, de- right? Go ahead, sorry. Well, and then the decision happens, and I imagine it, it even, even though you're not sure how the book is going to turn out, you understand that this has taken an angry turn, and this is the tone that I'm going to take. Did you feel some kind of... Um, did you feel like you had to keep disliking him, that, like a pressure to, to write the book in a certain tone from that point on? Or, or were you more open to seeing how you would feel or, and how the story turned out? Well, it, actually, the, 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 the latter. What I, what I mean is, and just like nobody who's buying the book is buying it to find out, how did the season end? <laughs> you know, right. uh, you know, anyone who cares enough to even even be aware of the book already knows how it ended. I, I really had to uh, think about and go back and revise the early chapters. I couldn't pretend from the beginning that I didn't know that 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 would have been a very difficult way to write the book. In other words, uh, I kind of had to sit down and approach the thing as a a, a blow by blow, you know, to to go through. Uh, the last season and this season, but but from the beginning, I think the anger the anger is there and it's plain. And I, you know, the reader, I'm not trying to trick the reader into thinking that the guy writing the book has no idea how things are going to turn out. So it's a it's a little bit of both, a little bit of a, a balancing act there, because there's no drama. There's backstory in terms of 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 as soon as I started reporting the book, long before his his decision, I mean, there was something very wrong with the way the team functioned, the way the media and the team functioned, and that, of course, from the beginning of, of, of the book, kind of looking back, seems like a tell. You know, it seems like, boy, if only, you know, I knew then uh, what I know now, I might have seen this whole thing coming. But, you know, the, the book itself is kind of, you know, it's kind of an exploration from the beginning of this, this depth of emotion and why it, Cleveland, I mean, every fan base has its, has its, suffering and they can whine and and cleveland you know it's it just imagine a, a philadelphia which, which is a great sports i mean, i moved to philly after living seven years in iowa and so <laughs> no it was like it was like going to heaven spike yeah. you know in the food and the sports and the passion and the 93 phillies and you know everything about it just lit me up and i love the fans there i still like the teams and at the same time, imagine if no Philly team had won a championship for 40, 46, 50, you know, it's getting close to 50 years now. The level of, of 
despair and the level of anger and rage and frustration. You know, in Cleveland, all those things are very real. Plus, Cleveland, I mean, when I was born, was the seventh largest city in the country. People had good middle-class jobs. Nobody called it the mistake on the lake. So Cleveland, you also have that, that we're, we are a loser in every possible way. And when they look to the sports teams to maybe give them a little bit of pride, like Pittsburgh means the world, to, to the, the Steelers and Pittsburgh are like one of the great marriages of city and team, and that's a Rust Belt town that's known hard times forever. But in Cleveland, you don't have any of that. Instead, you have a series of bitter defeats, each one of which can be part of a montage that the networks show every time. And now you've got LeBron after seven years without a title, and that's not his fault alone, by the way, not even close. But he goes and then starts talking about how easy it's going to be to win. You know, not four, not five. You know, you know <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It, it was tough. It was tough to take. I mean, people there, yeah, some people burned the jerseys or whatever, but in the context of the sports history of that town and the overall downward spiral of that town, uh, I wanted to get it all in the book. I really did. I felt this was one chance for one Cleveland fan to kind of put it all in context. How did it feel watching the playoffs um, in the, the the Boston and Chicago series last year, where at least it appeared to a certain extent as <laughs> if he had figured it out, they're going to steamroll their way through it? Like, Absolutely, how, yeah. How does it feel for you at that point? It felt it felt like this this was and and of course this is you know I, I did write write this stuff in the book because I lived it as a fan, you know this was the ultimate irony that yeah i was going to watch the greatest athlete ever produced in northeastern ohio finally bring a title home to miami there was no doubt in my mind especially the way he was playing you know those those rounds those early rounds i mean i know the sixers put up a great fight but but that was a mismatch in some ways and just in terms of pure talent oh sure but then they you know the celtics you can say oh you're too old you know uh, whatever you want to say they just destroyed the Celtics, and then the Bulls a year too soon, maybe. But whatever, whatever you want to use as an explanation, the Heat looked unstoppable, and the first two games against the Mavericks, I mean, it, it really, up until that moment where the game turned, you know, uh, when Wade hit that three-pointer, and there was some posing going on and, and all that stuff. I thought, I thought they were going to sweep the Mavs. I really I couldn't foresee a scenario where the Mavericks were good enough to beat the Heat four games, you know, four games in a series. Just couldn't see it. And then I, I can only, you know, I, I imagine the feeling of it was a great feeling to watch it crumble for you, right? I mean, it had to feel almost as good as a win for you, the, the loss for him. It was it was the strangest thing. Yes, absolutely. It did feel like a win. But it was bizarre because I was down there for game six for the last game. And I you know, I bought a really good seat. I was sitting with Mavericks fans and that by the way, that's one of the weirdest things is that where LeBron wanted to play and, and with all due respect to the town, which I, I like Miami and that's in the book too. I mean I, I, I always had a good time down there and I'm not some speedo on South Beach guy, but I always met good folks always had a good time, but that he chose to play in a place where in game six, an elimination game, at least a quarter of that arena was Dallas fans. I mean, imagine that, you know, in Philly or Cleveland where, you know, your team is in the finals facing elimination and the fans are louder, 
you know, against the home team. This is where LeBron wanted to play. So part of it, I was weirded out. I mean, yes, I was, I was really pleased. No question about it. But there was no Cleveland team on the floor. You know, I'm having a, a sports orgasm, and there's no, there's none of my teams are playing. Yeah. And, and yes, yeah, so they don't win a championship. I'm thrilled, but Cleveland still doesn't have a championship after 46, 47 years of waiting. And it's really, it's really a complex kind of, what, what the heck, man? This is, this is like, I, I'm, I'm overjoyed, but <laughs> I'm only overjoyed because a fine young athlete fell apart. The the moment that I decided I lo- that I was a fan of his, even though I'm a Sixers fan, that I was a fan of his was when he he did that thing against the Pistons in the playoffs when he scored. Oh man! And 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 that moment, and they went to the finals that year, and even through that Orlando series, it seemed watching him that he. F- he thrived on having all of the pressure on him, that yep. he wanted the ball. And then all of a sudden, in that moment, against the Celtics and then through the, and then into the, the, the final series against the Mavs, it appeared as if he was a completely different person. What do you think happened from point A to point B to cause that? There's, uh, I, I, you know, I, I tried to write, report the book like a journalist. You know, write it like a fan, but, but try, and, try and do as deep a job of reporting as I could. And, and part of his history turns out uh, that even, even as a younger player in, in those times where he was performing brilliantly under pressure, there were issues with him in the playoffs. There were, there were back spasms. There were sh- he got the shingles. You know, there were, there were, there were things that the organization had always been worried. None of this was ever, ever reported. And I don't know how much of it was really known, but the organization had always been concerned because he was a guy who clearly felt the pressure. Now, we all know, I mean, that Orlando series where they lost, he averaged 38-8-8. and So, you know, and then that Pistons game you referred to, we're talking about a guy who has turned in some arguably historical, some of the best playoff performances ever. So you can't just say, oh, it's all one way, or, oh, he's merely a choke artist. But it was very strange last season when, after all, he's playing you know, with one of the greatest players in the league right now, Dwayne Wade, and you've got to give Chris Bosh credit. He had a great, great playoff performance. We was consistent the whole, the whole way through. So he's got the players, and he doesn't have the same degree of pressure in terms of carrying the, the burden himself, and he still crumbles like that. I mean, there's something, he's certainly young and talented enough to turn it around, not that I hope he does, but you got to acknowledge the talent is there and he's still got time. But I don't know if there's a parallel in baseball, football, or basketball for a guy who can function at the MVP level consistently and has this kind of problem in the playoffs. It's bizarre. It's almost like a, a Mackie Sasser was this catcher that couldn't throw re- the ball back. I remember him well. Yes, yeah, Steve Sachs had that problem. Yeah. You know, uh, the guy, old pitcher for the Pirates named Steve Blass, suddenly couldn't throw a strike to save his life. Something's there, and, and you know, it's something I, I took liberties in the book. I addressed that problem. I, I don't know that it's even fair to do that, but I went there. You know, I want to... I wanna, think about a guy and people you know people they they mock his mother and they 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 i mean i i wasn't going to write a book that 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 just spent all this time uh, focusing on on rumors and dirt and this kind of thing his mother whatever her problems may have been was 15 years old 
and did everything she could with the resources she had to make sure that, you know, when she farmed them out to other families, she still never dropped the threat of motherhood. And, you know, whatever's missing in him, and I took some liberties in trying to explore that, I tried to do it honestly and not just, you know, with this dismissive, uh, contemptuous attitude because I think it's a legitimate question. of, You know, what is missing in this guy? What is it that makes that difference? And I'm not sure that I came up with the answers, but I do think it's one of the most fascinating questions uh, for anyone who cares about the NBA because I can't think of another guy who's ever manifested. I mean, Mackie Sasser, those guys, yeah, but they weren't. LeBron, they, yeah. they weren't a guy who clearly is going to be a, a Hall of Famer, one of the ten best players who've ever played basketball. And, and he's that one guy, and I can't figure it out for the life of me, really. Uh, normally, hypothetical questions are, are pretty stupid, but for some reason, I wanted to ask you, if you, for, for one day, you're in charge of the Cavs, and for some reason, you know, the, the Miami Heat decide they want to offer you LeBron James. Would, would <laughs> yeah. You, would, or he's a free agent in two years or three years, and he decides he wants to come back. Would you... Would you want him back on the Cavs if you had the opportunity? That's a great question, which means I, I really I don't know if I can come up with a good answer. I, I, I think, you know, I like, I like narrative. You know, I like good stories. I think that's one of the other beautiful things about sports is there are clearly winners and losers, and we can impose our little stories on these things. And, and wouldn't that be awesome if that were to come to pass? You know, I, because, by the way, and, and I've talked to plenty of guys who cover the heat every day, and there are some guys who who can put it into context of his career in Miami. I'm thinking you know, a guy like Brian Windhorst, who was yeah, uh, the great. Akron Beacon. Yeah, and, and you know, I think, it's, I think for, for LeBron, I think there have been plenty of times this year he was spending more time talking about Cleveland than he was about playing in Miami. I think there's a sense on his end that it might not have been the right decision, right. especially the way it turned out. So in a scenario like that, I would have to give it serious thought. I would also want to have a coach like Byron Scott. I mean, LeBron, you know, when he came into the league with the Cavs, they had Paul Silas, who, who had earned a lot of credibility, a lot of gravitas as a, as a power forward, former Boston Celtic, kind of the father figure that I think is at the heart of part of LeBron's problem. Uh, I think if I were to bring LeBron you know, back to the Cavs, I would want that kind of coach. Byron Scott, who has his weaknesses, to be sure, is that kind of coach. The Cavs coach now is a guy who has three rings, I think, with the, from the Showtime Lakers. Yeah. And the Cavs never gave LeBron that after Paul Silas was fired. They never gave him even an assistant coach who had that kind of solid you know, tested under under ultimate pressure, who could have stood LeBron down a little bit when, when things got dicey, uh, and also served as someone that LeBron trusted and could go to if he needed that. And so I think, you know, yeah, I could foresee, you know, my, when my folks split up when I was 10, I spent some years hoping they'd get back together. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, on one level, wouldn't that be the greatest story of all? If if he were to return, yeah, sure. Be, yeah. Because if he had, if they had won a championship and he still had decided to become a free agent, that's that's a scenario where I honestly believe that the fans, while they would have felt terribly sad, would not have sent, not have had this sense of outrage and betrayal. Right. And and at the same time, I also think had he brought the one championship to that town, his legacy would have been established forever 
as one of the all-time greats, whereas now, you know, I don't know how many rings, if any, he'll wind up winning, but it's not going to be the same as having stayed in Cleveland and brought brought a title to Northeastern Ohio. So. Uh, sometimes when I watch... When I watch the Heat players, when I watch LeBron James and Dwayne Wade talk about their team, I get the sense that, you know, sometimes you have a favorite band and you go and you buy that favorite band's new album and you bring it home and you know that it's not as good as you wanted it to be, but you keep listening to it over and over and over again and convincing yourself that it's what you wanted because it's your favorite band. And sometimes when I watch them talk about the team, I get this feeling that they all know on some level that even just the on-court chemistry does not work the right way between Dwayne Wade and LeBron James, but they went and they bought the album, so they got to convince themselves that they like <laughs> well. it. I, I think that's I, I think that's flat out brilliant. I mean, and I also think, like like in any other human endeavor, it's going to take time if it ever if it's ever going to work, and it may not, you know, because they are not dissimilar players. They want the ball, and I know LeBron has a reputation. I think partly well earned as someone who does like to share and does like to to pass. Uh, uh, you do have this sense. I do have this sense that it doesn't fit that. It's not going to fit that they know that now and aren't quite sure, you know, how to, how to work it going forward. I, at the same time, you know, they made it to the finals in their first year together, and I hate to put together an argument that, you know, that, that, that's, that argues, you know, the Heat are going to win, but one of the things that I'll never understand, and I remember Dwayne Wade because I've watched it on YouTube a hundred times, when LeBron's sitting there when the Heat held that big party, and LeBron's going not four, not five. During that same press conference, if you want to call it that, he talked about how easy it was going to be and made a joke about how Pat Riley can come be the point guard because it's going to be and, – and Dwayne Wade looked at him sideways. You know, Dwayne Wade has won a championship, and the look on Dwayne, Dwayne Wade's face was like, you know, it's not easy. Yeah. Hey, hey. And it isn't. It isn't. I don't care what, what your field, what your profession, getting to the top – is a, is a fight, and it takes a long time, and something's wrong. If he, if LeBron still is under the impression that somehow this is all going to come easy, maybe that says something about the chemistry. I don't know. Well, his hairline suggests that he's feeling the pressure. <laughs> I think a little bit. Is it if they do figure it out and they win, you know, a few championships and it ends up working? Is it a good story if he figures it out, or is it just, sure. or is it proof of a, that a that a bad story can come true? Well, I think, you know, for everyone but Cleveland fans, it's a great story. I mean, you know, John Elway was was a, a failed young quarterback until the drive. And, and for Cleveland fans, seeing him eventually grow into the quarterback who won a couple of Super Bowls, that was a great story. For Cleveland fans, it'll, it'll always be a bitter, bitter pill to swallow. But, yeah, I think if, if LeBron, and we saw it a little bit, I mean, part of it because of ESPN's determination – you know, to sell the brand, which LeBron is clearly a part of now. But we saw it last year as, as the, the Heat were rolling. Uh, it was about, well, they were burning his jersey, but now it's the best-selling jersey in, NBA, in, you know, in the NBA. And he's been a villain all over the league this year. But, you know, we saw that storyline starting to emerge, the redemption, whatever you want to call it. And, sure, I think, I think on the face of it, forgetting all my bias, you know, which is in my blood, really, as a Cleveland fan, you know, you want to see a guy like that turn it around. He, he, he hasn't, I don't think, reached the point 
where he's going to be a villain forever for every NBA fan who right now feels that, that he did the wrong thing or did it in the wrong way. I think if the Heat do manage to put it together, win those titles, I think people will certainly, outside of Cleveland, will certainly you know, uh, succumb to the beauty of that narrative. I, I believe it because it seems only right that a guy with that level of talent eventually figure it out. The, the shame of all of this story is that with, with this storyline and all of the others that we have to follow along with the NBA is the fact that, that not only are, are they in a lockout, but the, the talks apparently came to a grinding halt last night, and who knows if there's even going to be an NBA, which is the, the shame of all of this is that at the height of this story and all of these stories is that who knows when we're even going to see a game again. It's very, it's, it, it's very weird to me also because right now, at least as of today, Billy Hunter, in fact, named Dan Gilbert. So the, you got the Cavs owner being blamed in a lot of places as the hardliner who basically ruined any chance of the two sides coming to the agreement. And whether or not that's the case, it's, it's hev- heavy with the irony because you know, Dan Gilbert certainly did take it personally and, and you know, part of the book for me, was finding out how personally he did take it. At the same time, the way LeBron did it, and again, I believe in the right of free agency, but the, the way LeBron did it, I mean, the way he, he cut off all contact with the organization after that Boston loss in the playoffs of the year before. And when Dan Gilbert was trying to figure out what he could do to make things right, to keep LeBron, LeBron not only wouldn't take his calls, but when Dan, Dan Gilbert was trying to explore hiring coaches like Tom Izzo, LeBron wouldn't take anyone's calls. It was it was really uh, the kind of thing where I know that Dan Gilbert's a businessman, and I know that LeBron represented hundreds of millions of dollars in profit. It was still a very personal thing. And what LeBron did and the way he did it, if you wanted to make an argument that that was what was responsible for the owners, not just Dan Gilbert, but some of the other owners going, that's the end of that. No longer are our businesses going to be run by you know individual athletes, you know what? I'm more of a union guy to be honest with you. Even in a union where the average salary is five million bucks, yeah. but 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 it's you and me, and it's every other fan who suffers because last season, you know, maybe for me it was hell, but for the NBA that was as close to heaven as it gets. It was a wonderful season, and and the passion and the interest had never been higher. And for the owners to take this kind of scorched earth stance about the collective bargaining agreement and lose a season. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and especially, I mean, in Philadelphia, it's it's awful. I mean, to take the step that the, the team took last year and to go yep. into this, it's it's awful for a lot of cities, you know, that are that just want to see basketball. And the I was talking to Kate Fagan, who's the the local, who the, the Inquirer beat reporter, and she just she was just mentioning that the and I think a lot of people have said this is that the the league is under an illusion about how big and important it might be and and people they go away for too long you know this is a they are a boutique sport they are not the nfl they are not a walmart sport they're a, they're a little store on the corner and and if they go away for too long people will find a, other things to do i think they're they're in real trouble if this season goes away i think the league is in serious serious trouble more than just the financial trouble that they are that they're talking about they're in in real real trouble if that happens I, you would know better than, than than me about what happened i'm not sure if anything did happen 
uh, and to hurt the relationship between Philly and the Flyers when when the NHL went dark for all season. Did that have a lasting horrible impact or not? No, but but Philly and the Flyers relationship is different than Philly and the Sixers relationship. Agree, yeah. absolutely. And, yeah. and and that's what and you know it took hockey you know probably five years to recover, but hockey didn't never. I don't think hockey was ever under the illusion that they were. A big deal. I, I think yeah. they understood what they were, and they were. In, I don't know that the NBA n- thinks of itself in the same way that hockey does, as a you know, as a diehard fan kind of sport. But not, but you know, but regular people don't get involved into the playoffs. I don't know that the NBA quite understands what their place is. I don't either. And I and 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 one of the things that puzzles me the same way I said before about how Nike uh, didn't seem to have anyone who could help. Uh, LeBron and Maverick Carter, LeBron's manager, another Akron kid who I think is really over his head in his role, uh, that Nike uh, uh, couldn't couldn't give these guys some advice about the decision. In the same way, I wonder, you know, ESPN, which I think is by far the most powerful entity in American sports, uh, you know, they're partners with the NBA, billion-dollar-a-year partners. All these apparel companies, all these shoe companies, all these you know energy drink companies that have invested hundreds of millions and billions of dollars in these athletes, that there there can't be enough outside pressure brought to bear to try and help resolve this. Because after all, we we do have billions of dollars at stake in a sport that is not the NFL. Whatever other argument you want to make about whether or not it's truly boutique, or we know that that the NFL is America's game. Uh, but it's amazing to me, being the capitalist society we are, that nobody has managed to put the two sides together and point out the fact that nobody's going to win this thing if they if they lose the season. Nobody. Well, I'll tell you, man. I was um, I was I was looking forward to reading your book, and then I read the excerpt, and I was looking forward even more to reading the book just to see how the <laughs> yeah. other half lives. The excerpt almost reads like this basketball fear and loathing in Las Vegas kind of thing. Oh. Like, the way you write is pretty cool. I'm I'm definitely psyched to read. Uh, it, thanks, so. man. I, you know, I. I I appreciate that very much, and and I, you know part of the problem in you know getting the credentials or that you know, I grew up at a time when journalism was defined differently. When Hunter S. Thompson really was filing stories for Rolling Stone on a regular basis, and the the National Lampoon of the early 1970s, good taste wasn't an issue. So I never paid the kind of newspaper dues that a lot of the guys who report on the league have. So. It to me, it's always been as a magazine writer. I've been at Esquire 15 years now. I was at GQ five years before that. I've always, I've always felt free to write that way, and and I've enjoyed every minute of it, and felt the same way with the book. But I also, you know, I think that kind of is how we feel. I mean, I generally speaking, in order for for someone to file a story in the paper, do something on air. I mean, you really need to be careful and make sure. You know, you're not offending any part of the readership, and you're being as objective as you humanly can. And for better or for worse, I don't operate under those kinds of constraints, and certainly not in the book. So it's a, if I may use the phrase, balls out, it's really that kind of thing. Well, I, I always say that you know people can get game stories anywhere, but they can only get your opinion from you. So I think you pro- you know you you giving me your feelings on it is more interesting to me than what happened in the game. I can see what happened in the game, but you know I can't I, tell how you feel unless you tell me. So I appreciate it. I also wish there were more. You know, I worry. I mean, the more you know, you badmouth ESPN, and I do in the book. 
the more you worry, is ESPN going to absolutely pretend the book doesn't even exist? Because they're, they're a defensive organization. But, but one of the things that bothers me about you know, the way things get covered is any beat writer has to be careful about what he writes because you, know, you want to maintain access. Right. You know, gone are the days when the team actually felt any, any kind of equal relationship or the athlete felt uh, close a reporter it still happens but a lot of it is based on the reporter not reporting certain things or not feeling free uh to 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 lean in one direction or another it's one of the things that i think makes you makes your dad really special uh is that it makes wip when i was living there a must listen was always the the sense of uh uh we're gonna we're gonna pull no punches here and and you know it it's when you've got espn driving most of the coverage and ESPN deciding we're going to write the heat. We have the heat index now. We're going to devote a tremendous amount of our resources to covering the Miami Heat, and we're going to sell commercial time, you know, to the cell phone companies that pay these same athletes that we're supposed to be covering millions of dollars a year. It's tough to feel that you're getting an honest, incredible look at what's going on when everything seems like a daisy chain. And I have a problem with that. I have a problem with it as a fan, I'm saying. Well, yeah, Well, and, and I don't know what we can do with it, like, what, what anyone can do about it. I think the, the interesting thing in the sports co- climate and the reporting now is, no, the teams don't need the reporters because they can get the message out themselves. But then again, the reporters don't need, I don't need access. You know, I don't need their access. I can hear all the quotes on TV and on the Internet, and I can watch the games. So, I mean, they're not giving me any access that I, that, you know what I mean? Like the trade-offs are gone. It's just, it's... They can go play their sports, and we can talk about them. And I don't, I don't need to talk to them anymore. So I, it's a, uh, it's a new world. I think that everybody is, um, is going into is now with sports. And sports I think that's absolutely, that's, that's absolutely right. And and I think some of the most, some of the people doing doing some great work. And I know some of them in Cleveland don't don't know what's going on in Philly online. But uh, you know whether whether it's it's uh, you know doing the going the podcast route. Uh, doing the, doing the stuff, uh, you know, blogging. Uh, more of those guys are are getting credentials actually, and of course, then they, they I've seen it I've seen it happen where once they get the credential, they're so darn worried that the blog becomes, uh, you know, white bread again. But yeah, I think I think it is a brave new world. I'm not sure I get it. I mean, I've made my mistakes just learning learning how to tweet, you know, and I don't mean just bad taste mis- mistakes. I, you know, just what's a direct message versus sending it to the whole world, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. So yeah, it, it, but it, it is a good time. It's a good time to say, you know what? I really don't love what you just said. I don't need to sit in the locker room listening to the same quote 50 other reporters are getting, you know, I can, I can get all that and I can put my own spin on it and attract an audience. Well, the uh, the book is Whore of Akron. Uh, the Whore of Akron? There's a the there, right? Like the bad No, it's, the, it's, the. it's actually the whole title is The Whore of Akron, One Man's Search for the Soul of LeBron James. Which you say you did not find, <laughs> right? Didn't no, I, 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 I never, you know, I, I never really found his, and I'm not saying everything is irony, but it's kind of, in my mind at least, it, it's kind of like not a not a... A real joke. One of the things I did when Esquire ran the excerpt is I wrote a little little thing you can link to a little backstory thing where I said I, I really didn't find his soul, but I saw his penis once. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's another one of those things a real sports writer would. You know, it happens in the locker room. Yeah, you do. Yeah. You know, inadvertently you might 
you might see someone, and but you never say anything, you know, ever, ever, ever. But to me, you know, it's, it's just funny. Uh, just the whole concept of of the, I took the search seriously. I really did, and I'm going to continue in, in my own way to you know follow the story. Uh, but you know, the idea of actually finding someone's soul, you know, uh, that's for the clergyman. That's that's for a higher power. We all take sports at one level pretty seriously, those of us who love it. But at some point, you also got to back off a little bit and shrug and go, you know what? Uh, life goes on, even for a Cleveland fan, even for a Philly fan. I'm glad to have it as part of my life. I think it enriches it. The people I feel sorriest for are those who don't have a team, don't have a real passion uh, for, for any team in pro sports. Uh, and as far as LeBron James' soul goes, Whatever I ever wished on him at any given moment, I certainly want his children to. You know, he's got two sons. I want them to live long, healthy, productive lives. And and you know, it's it. It says a lot about us as a culture uh, when when this stuff becomes so important. I had a great time doing the book. I'm grateful for the seriously grateful for the chance to talk about it. And all I could do is hope that people you know who do read it have as good a time as I had covering covering and writing it. Well, thanks, man. And once again, a uh, book November 15th, and uh, you can pre-order now at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and all that's on, uh, uh, I put that, you know, on the site, too. So I, I thanks. Thanks very much, oh, man. Thanks for the time. My pleasure. A- anytime. Let's, seriously, let's do this again. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Talk soon. All right, I hope. See you, man.